0: R-
1: Razib, Hello. Can you Hey, how him? you doing? He's he's down there. Huh? Do not let von Neumann ask a
0: question. <laughs> Don't let von Neumann. In. <laughs> We love you. We love you, Mr. John von Neumann. We appreciate all your contributions uh to game theory, uh, to uh uh to uh mathematics to um to, every, to everything. So no, we, we appreciate you, John von Neumann, but you're very you're very annoying sometimes. I think you I think you know that. Uh how's how's it going, Razib? I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, so we're gonna uh, you're right. You sound you sound a little a little down.
1: Nah, I've just been just working all day, man, working all working, 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 man. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to okay. I'm trying to finish off like I you know, I'm just doing my work for my startup, but I'm also trying to finish off a substack piece on the Huns, get that out in the next day or so so that I can get a lot of content at the beginning of July so I can just kinda of relax for a little while, you know?
0: Uh-huh. Do you try to keep up with like a regular schedule? Uh
1: I mean sort of, but like, you know, sometimes it's just the editing takes a long time and so you know um sometimes there's like a three-week gap um and then like i'll post like four things within like a week and a half you know yeah so i think like my current plan is to um write
0: shorter essays and more frequently so
2: Hmm.
0: are you gonna you you used to blog about all kinds of things it's always gonna you're always gonna stick with sort of uh genetics and history
1: um, well, I did a re- re- reader survey. You'll see it the results uh, tomorrow. Um, that's what they really want me to write about. It's what my comparative advantage is. So
0: uh, I, I'll probably do a few, a little bit of the other stuff, but not too much. You know, I was thinking about doing this for my readers. Did you do like demographic stuff, like political? Yeah, of course. Stuff? I mean, I've been doing this for
1: twenty years. There's no, there's no major changes actually. Um, I did find out that seventy uh, percent of the survey respondents. Uh, claim they found my sub stack. The paid the subscription ones found them through me, either through my Twitter or my blog. So I need to figure out a way. I mean, the the free ones, uh, only like 45% did. So I'm getting new people through the free ones, but I got to convert them. But you know, it's yeah. like 85% dudes, you know, yeah, 50% Everybody, have graduate degrees.
0: Oh, I got to okay, I got to see mine. That's that's interesting. What is the um, what's the po- the political makeup, I assume is overwhelmingly conservative, but I mean how conservative? No, it's it's center right,
1: but um there's always the number 2 is always center left. I tend to have like um not a uniform distribution, but um it's it's tilted right, but I have people that are far left and people that are far right and the number 2 category is usually center left and then there's moderate. So no, Ooh. it's not overwhelming. So
0: interesting so yeah I mean,
1: where, mine... where, where else are like you know liberals gonna get content like
0: this you know <laughs> I mean, yeah yeah luck. yeah I mean a high percentage of people tell me they find me through Scott Alexander because uh, I've been on Scott Alexander's blog a few times so yeah I think, I think that you know so I don't know what exactly mine would be and I've been in mainstream stuff but you know the majority I think is coming from right wing so I would be surprised if mine wasn't overwhelmingly uh, right wing but if you're not overwhelmingly right wing maybe uh, Maybe mine. Aren't it, yeah, it depends.
1: Either. Like, I think like most of my recommendations have leaned more to the right, like through Substack. But um, when it comes to um, other sources, like uh, there are liberal journalists, like David Frum, and or well, maybe he's not liberal, but like Julia Yaffe, who've been like recommending me. And
0: Julia Yaffe's been
1: recommending you. Wow, she did last September. I mean, she subscribed for like six months.
0: Uh uh-huh. Wow. Should so the she, Jewish want the Yaffe, Jewish Yaffe, one I sub- Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah. Yeah. You guessed okay. correctly. You're not supposed to say that, man. (laughs) Yeah, I guess actually was more familiar with some of your yeah more controversial one, man. But yeah,
1: (laughs) what was I say? So yeah, there's um, I'm I'm looking at the political. Let's do these are the these are paid. Thirty-four percent center left, or no, thirty-four percent center right. Nineteen percent center left. Fifteen percent moderate, thirteen percent libertarian, eight percent far right, seven percent other option, and then they filled in a bunch of stuff. Uh, 3% far left and 1%
0: anarchist. Mm. So you have about, you have about, so total all the right-wing ones are about 50 or something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's libertarian, if you include libertarian. How many was know, libertarian? 13%. Oh,
0: okay. Well, yeah, that, that'll that get you to about 60, right? For, yeah, it's uh, yeah, so about 60, 40. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: do like socially liberal and uh, economic breakdown. It tilts a little bit social liberal but considerably more economically conservative and that's, you know, tends to be more more libertarians in there
0: and so that 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 skews that Uh, yeah okay yeah now now that you got this data i want to i need to get my own to uh uh... do a comparison you know what the coolest thing was scott alexander um had a thing where he just asked his readers to rate like a bunch of different things and then you can like look at the ranking of how they rated them so it would be like just everything in the world like gay marriage like one through five like adolf hitler like alex jones Kevin McCarthy Uh, I think there are racial differences in intelligence which ranked like the third highest thing among Scott Alexander readers believe it or not Uh, and so he just does this for like everything and you can see how they rank everything in the universe from like you know 50 to 100 things yeah Um, these surveys are pretty weird Right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exhaustive maybe I'll put it yeah so i'm gonna do i'm gonna do that I, I bet i have some very i bet i have some very interesting you know because i i wrote that piece liberals read conservatives watch tv so to have you know i think if you if you did like the readers of the wall street journal it would be more liberal than you would expect because liberal there are just more liberals who are reading um yeah. there are conservatives and it's the same it's the same probably for our uh uh sub stack so uh the fact that you do this, uh, you know, yeah, I wanna. So I got twenty percent. I got twenty-two
1: percent PhD holders.
0: Yeah, fifteen percent professional degrees. So JD, MD, DDS. What's the resp- What's the response rate? How many
1: percentage of your readers filled one out? It depends because I sent I sent two, and I got a response rate of thirty percent from my from my paid <laughs> subscribers and a response rate of eleven percent from my
0: free subscribers. Gotcha. Yeah. And my makes total sense. sample
1: size is eight fifty.
0: Uh-huh. okay yeah that makes sense so there uh that you would get um yeah that you would get more from the paid subscribers Uh I have one okay. uh, percent though who graduated just from high school so one <laughs> percent yeah okay cool uh do you have a uh, what about age you got age
1: yeah I mean it's um it's 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 uh older millennial uh young gen x is modal so I got thirty five to forty nine is thirty one percent Sixty-five and over is twenty-five percent. Fifty to sixty-four is twenty-three percent. Under thirty-five is twenty-one percent.
0: What about what about race?
1: Ah, yeah, it's it's always the same. Um, So the race, I I think they've actually got my readers have gotten older. Like as I've gotten older, I think it used to be more young when I was younger. But in any case, racial identity: uh, seventy-nine percent white, ten percent South Asian. This is for paid. Um, Four percent mixed, four percent other, two percent West Asian, one percent East Asian. Uh, and, like, you know, like, you know, trace black Pacific Islander. Mm. So,
0: so, you don't have any, but you don't have any, but you have trace, trace black. You don't have any blacks. Well,
1: I have like, I have a couple of respondents, but that's less than 1% because, uh-huh. you know, I say 150 in your sample. Yeah. And then we got like the, the religion thing, it's always the same <laughs> like about 40% atheist, 25% Christian, 10% Jewish. Most of those are atheists. Uh, 15% non religious, but not atheist, 5% Hindu. One percent Muslim, one percent Buddhist, and then like five okay. percent other options. So, you know, yeah, I got a lot of data there. I'll be
0: like posting it on my um What was East Asian again? One percent. That's a that's incredible how how highly success socioeconomically successful East Asians are.
1: Yeah, they are, but like uh, so my, my readers are actually so check this I mean this is this is consistent. Uh fifty six percent rate themselves as upper middle class, twenty two percent middle class, seventeen percent upper class. Four percent lower class, or four percent lower middle class, and one percent lower class. So I have like seventeen times more people who consider themselves upper class than lower class, which is probably an exaggeration, but it's definitely. I mean, just looking at the education, obviously that makes sense, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, yeah. The, lo- the locus is definitely the upper middle class and a lot of like libertarian tech bros. Uh, one thing that because I do have like a question about um, what, pr- what, like, what was your course of study? And, like, biological science is actually not that high. Um, it's really, I mean, I'm surprised always, like, how many uh, uh, tech people, uh, like, or math and computer science, 14% studied math and computer science, which is a fair amount. 12% engineering, and then biological science is 10%. So, um, I don't know. It's, uh, so that's interesting to me. I've noticed that techies tend to get into my stuff a lot.
0: What, what, is, uh, the, what are the people who share uh, Julia Yaffe's background? Do you have a question like that? Uh, you mean? Well, I I already told Female you. Female journalists. That, that's pretty low. I think it's no. Like it's the other thing, Jewish.
1: Uh, it's ten percent.
0: Oh, that's that. That is high. That is an over. That is an uh, overrepresentation.
1: Yeah, ten percent. I mean, that makes sense though. No, look no, I'm how, not. Look, look at how it's like skewed
0: socioeconomically and educationally, right? Yeah. No, I'm not surprised at that. Yes, you have a 10 to 1 ratio between Jews and East Asians. Although, like in the U.S., East Asians are the bigger population, and they're both high socioeconomic group. So that's that's very interesting. I don't think East Asians are super interested in this sort of content. Oh, they're not interested in politics, period. I think you would find it in any kind of uh, blog. I think you would find them massively underrepresented. Yeah, I mean, I get like, a lot of brown people because I'm brown, but that's only, like, percent It's funny you only have 10% Asian because since I've been on, like, Brown Pundits, like, I have a lot of Indian fans. So I, th- I thought like, my fans might be 5%, you know, Indian or something. I thought you would be actually higher,
1: but you have more Well, these, than these, are, these are paid subscribers, uh, but also it's, all, it's the same. It's the same as paid. They're just very talkative. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, they're, you would think that they're closer to 20% yeah. by, <laughs> they, by they word count. Yeah, let's just put it that
0: way, not to
1: be pejorative. <laughs>
0: should we, so, should we start talking about the piece? Uh, sure. Yeah let's get to let's get to the piece. So, I love your work. I mean, it's just uh, who you know. You read a lot of history. You read tons and tons of history. Um, uh, I haven't too much in the last year, but I still remember most of it. So. Yeah, and you have a good you have a good memory too. I read a book and I read it again two years later. I don't remember anything like barely any, maybe one or two like anecdotes stand out. Do you do you do you retain stuff? I do term? retain
1: stuff. Um, the only thing I do have to say is like um, I believe when I was about forty, I read a book. I started reading a book. It was, I think it was American Colonies by Alan Taylor, and I think I had read it um, like twenty years earlier, and I was like, this book is super familiar, and then I realized, oh. I
0: read this, so it takes about twenty years, and then I do I forget that I've read it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay, so yeah, so the Egyptians are um, are you know what, what how do how do we know who the ancient Egyptians were? Can you talk about that? Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, so um, as I said in my piece, um, the ancient Egyptians we know a lot about them because we know. Um, their language. And so, you know, we define history by literate production. And so the Egyptians and Mesopotamians are the first two, quote, civilizations, which I think is a little bit misleading now, but I um, won't we'll get into that. Um, so literacy, we have them from about like, I think like 29, 2800 BC, Old Kingdom, the early period. And so, you know, we have here a society that's organized around the pharaoh. Um, you know, they do these sorts of burials, uh, related to the afterlife. Initially, they were focused on the god Horus. Later, they shifted to Amun-Ra. But, um, they never totally got rid of Horus. So, uh, we know who they are partly because they maintain cultural continuity down to classical antiquity. So, um, you know, we, there were some details that were shifted over, but, you know, by the time you had the Rosetta Stone and, uh, Demotic Egyptian, and uh, all that stuff during the Ptolemaic period, uh, you know, uh, Egyptian society had changed and yet um, its core presuppositions arguably had kind of remained the same in terms of like the, temples, the temple complexes that served as uh, civic institutions, uh, the religious traditions. So I, I point out in my piece, um, you know, Cleopatra was famously a relatively in, relative indigenizer. Uh, in many ways, uh, in the Ptolemies, like as the last Ptolemy. Um, she's Macedonian, Phrygian, whatever, but, um, she was actually a patron and a devotee of Isis, uh, which is a goddess that dates to 2500 BC. So, um, this is like a cultural continuity that's pretty deep, and I, I didn't mention this in the piece because I would have to explain things. But, um, there's a period between 1000 BC and 500 BC where there's like multiple dynasties that are foreign, and one dynasty mm-hmm. Nubian, and the Nubian dynasty um they actually kind of got involved in egyptian politics because they had been culturally egyptianized so this is like kush and all that stuff you know northern sudan most of your listeners probably know that um when after the nubian dynasty was overthrown by libyans um the Daughter of the last Nubian pharaoh, and they they retreated back into Kush, like they weren't like you know, I mean, they just retreated back to where they came from. She stayed, and she actually negotiated with uh, as like the pre- head priestess of some temple institution um, with the new pharaohs. And it was just to me, it's interesting because her identi- identification with this particular institution superseded her genealogical lineage as you know, basically a descendant or a legacy of the old dynasty, of the Nubian dynasty. And, um, the Libyans, uh, basically, uh, respected that institutional, um, standing. And so, uh, you know, um, stylistically, or like, you know, stylized fact like the last, last, uh, pagan Egyptian temple was in Philae in the far south. They closed it down in 537 AD, uh, under Justinian. He was just doing this sort of stuff all over the place. There's some argument whether really it might not have been an operating temple. Uh, mm. for like 70 years before it closed. But um, there is some evidence that the ancestors of the Beja people were actually, the, the Blemies were actually patronizing the temple. So, you know, it persists into late antiquity, almost until the rise of Islam, um, this ancient Egyptian religion. And then what else we know about the Re- Egyptians? We obviously know their language, because we still have their language. That's the Coptic language, which is still preserved in Coptic liturgy. Coptic disappears as a written language in, tw- in the 1200s AD, um, as a spoken language probably somewhere in the 1800s. So, um you know, 1700s, 1800s, something like that, in some villages in the Nile, just like Aramaic has persisted down to the present in some villages in Syria. So we know a lot about the Egyptians, partly because, you know, hieroglyphs and their bas-reliefs and their obelisks, their monuments um, in the inscriptions, the representations, and then also the Greeks, if we didn't have any of this material remains – the uh-huh. Hebrews and the Greeks would have told us a lot about the Egyptians. Right. You know, um, So they were influential on both these, both these groups, um, and both of these groups are influential in Western civilization in general. So Egypt has been just a big deal for a long time, I and mean, there's weird things like – I think Egyptian mummies were like some sort of quack cure in the, in the 19th century. Um so we did lose a lot of those samples, you know. So um it's been part of our culture for a long time and it's been such a big part of our culture that you know in the 19th century when theories of uh you know Nordic supremacy were dominant, the you know, theory was that we Egyptians had to be Nordic people that went to Africa, you know, and brought civilization. And as a counter reaction in the early 20th century, you have like you know people like Marcus Garvey, these you know kind of like proto-Afrocentrists and um you know I think Diop is the big one who may had a lot of influence in the 20th century and they re-depicted Egypt as like a black african civilization and the Afrocentrists have kind of claimed Egypt because well I mean once you claim Egypt then you're like oh okay like it's almost the oldest civilization um so it's a big deal Now, this results in some anger from native Egyptians, uh, especially Coptic Egyptians who see themselves as the descendants of the ancient Egyptians because they're like, we're not black African. Obviously, mm-hmm. and you're just saying that, like, we're aliens and we're not, we're still here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I kind of got into a little bit of this I, I out of remove because what happened is um, there was a paper that came out in 2017. Actually, like, I was told by um, Mark Haber, he's a geneticist in England, he has an Egyptian woman from the 500s that was buried in Lebanon that he sequenced, and she matches these samples that I'm going to talk about, but I had forgotten about that when I wrote the piece. Um, but so basically, what they did is they got 90 samples from 90 mummies that date to kind of like the Roman period. Uh, actually, some of them are actually medieval, so they're not mummies; they're just burials. Uh, but they, they're they're from like the you know kind of like early early medieval all the way back to about 1380 BC. So that's like the height of the New Kingdom. So that's 90 sample, or more than 90 samples. Then they got 90 samples that got mitochondrial DNA out Mitochondrial DNA is a maternal lineage. You know from at mitochondrial Eve. It's passed mm-hmm. from mother to daughter to mother to daughter to mother to daughter. Okay, so we got that. Mm-hmm. Looking at the nuclear DNA was much harder because nuclear DNA is not nearly as copious as mitochondrial DNA. So they had 18,000 times more reads out of mitochondrial DNA than nuclear DNA. So out of the 90 samples, only three passed their quality control, um, their quality control thresholds, which really they probably could have been a little less generous uh, mm-hmm. or a little bit more generous with the quality control, but whatever. It's, uh, these are three good samples. The samples had like one hundred to like 500,000 SNPs, maybe more than 500,000. So that's single nucleotide polymorphisms. less markers. Uh, 23andMe has a 660,000 or so, I think. uh, SNP Array, Ancestry has 700,000. I mean, that's a really good number of SNPs. It's a really Mm. good number of genetic variants to do analyses on. So some people are complaining, um, would complain, okay, well, it's only three samples. And so just so you know, the samples are from about two from 800 B.C. um, So that's the late period. um, And then one from like the late Ptolemaic period, like almost the Roman period, right? So maybe around 0 A.D. or 30 A.D. or 30 B.C. So these are relatively late, um, but they're whole, they're whole genome analyses, and um, what they show is uh, basically they're Middle Eastern, okay? Mm-hmm. They're, they're Middle Eastern people, um, and when you look at the mitochondrial DNA, um, you notice a pattern where most of the mitochondrial lineages are what you would expect from that part of the Near East uh, in the ancient period and then in modern egypt about 20% are sub saharan african so this is um you know for the mitochondrial nerds out there it'll be haplogroup l l is rooted in africa south of sahara it's not very common outside unless it has some african connection recent african connection and in ancient egypt it's closer to like 1 to 5% really close to 1% mm-hmm. um so what you're seeing is like a massive increase in african population and sub saharan african ancestry between the period of ancient egypt and modern egyptians now this makes sense because I mean someone needs to write a, a book about I mean there's been r- books about Islamic slavery but there was something about Islamic sl- slavery that was actually different than Roman slavery um because I mean I think part of it is they were a little bit more humane to to slaves not super humane like not with the castration and everything like that but mm-hmm. um you know slave children were integrated into Islamic societies much more easily than Roman society where they discouraged the reproduction of slaves and they could actually kill They would kill the children and the slaves, like if they got pregnant Mm. and stuff. You know, so they were very anti-natalist about that. So anyway, um, the Islamic period shows this massive influx of African ancestry into the Near East. And so that is definitely what is accounting for what you see in modern Egypt. You can look at the se- length of the segments of DNA, and the length of the segments of DNA indicate a mean time of admixture of 750 years ago. No, that's uh-huh. mean. There's still variants around that. So some of it's earlier, some of it's later. But the upshot of that is um, African ancestry, sub-Saharan African ancestry has gone considerably up. Now, does that mean that it was zero uh, in the ancient period? Probably not. One, we're already seeing, like, you know, you know, a couple of percent of uh, haplogroup L in the late period. Two, we have depictions of Nubians as early as the Old Kingdom, like people from the south with very dark skins, obviously, along with other populations. Um, they were in Egypt. Um, and then also when I took some Coptic samples and I compared them to Egyptian samples, um, these are modern samples, I noticed some patterns. One, um, The modern Egyptian samples had much stronger – Muslim samples had much stronger affinity to West African populations. I Ah. think this is just due to the fact that the slave trade into the Islamic world was strongly skewed to the West Sudanic zone, Um, basically the Sahel, the Western Sahel from Lake Chad into Niger and Mauritania. And so these Nigerian samples are matching a lot of the African ancestry of the Muslims. There's very, very little of that in the Copts. The Copts don't tend to have that but there's some samples from the Nuba people of Central Sudan. So this is a sub-Saharan population in Central Sudan um you know probably related to the ancient Nubians although like the two are not exact isomorphic terms. In any case, um the cops show some evidence of Nuba affinity and so do the native Egyptians. So mm-hmm. I'm proposing here a situation where there's a first wave of sub-Saharan African admixture that comes directly from the south. Um, in Nubia, um, pretty early at low but continuous levels. Like, we know this historically attested, and we can kind of see this well mixed into the Coptic population. Um, it's at a low level, but it's there. Um, let's say like 10%, whatever, like give or take, probably a little lower, but it's fine. Um, and that's actually also found in in modern Egyptian Muslims. Um, so what is that telling you? I think that's telling you Egyptian Muslims are predominantly derived from Copts. And if I do a principal component analysis, uh, Cops are separate from Egyptian Muslims, but that's because Egyptian Muslims are shifted on the plot, and you can see this in the piece, uh, are shifted in the plot to West Africans, right? So there's an isolation by distance. Klein with West Africans do the recent admixture. With the ancient samples, there's three ancient samples. Um, they map um, into the just standard Middle East. They did some admixture analysis, model based clustering. Um, and those three ancient samples, when compared to modern Egyptians, modern Egyptians are shifted towards. towards um. Sub-Saharan Africans. This is exactly what I found, too. Um, In terms of the ancient Egyptians and all these populations, when you do model-based clustering... Um, there are three um farming populations that really started in the Near East around 10,000 years ago. One is based on the Zagros Mountains, basically. They're goat herders. Another are in central Anatolia. They're the ancestor of the early European farmers. And, they also and Zagros build- is
0: in Iran, right?
1: Yeah, western Iran. And then um, they also built Catalhoyuk in central Turkey. And the last is the Natufians, and they're probably the first farmers, and they're in the Levant. Mm -hmm. And so the Egyptians, all of these Middle Eastern populations actually kind of mixed over the next 5000 years. um, And so they're all mixtures of the three.
0: Right. Yeah. So um, one of the yeah, I'm looking looking at this here. Yeah. And so you have Druze, you have Palestinian, you have this great uh, figure. About the um, and then you show uh, you have you know Druze uh, Bedouins Palestinians and you have the colors for the three population Levant farmers the Zagros farmers and the Anatolian farmers and they look like so Middle Easterners basically they look I mean they look pretty evenly divided. Uh, between these uh, people it seems like the levant predominates in most populations but it's all a combination i mean a middle easterner today is from three and these were very just the zagros were the most distinct right yeah
1: so the the pairwise the genetic uh, variance between the zagros and the other two groups is 0.1 on the fst which basically is 10 percent of the variations between the groups and that's what you see with chinese
0: to northern europeans Mm. Okay, so Zagros is like a completely different, yeah, different race. And uh, the Levant farmers and the Anatolia farmers are sort of the same kind of people. They're closer. so the Middle Eastern, okay, yeah, so the Middle Eastern, a modern Middle Easterner today is the combination of, uh, like, you know, something like a third of the something like, uh, you know, as different from a European as a Chinese, something, a third very, very different. Yes, 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 somewhat yes, closer. And that's a yeah. model Middle Easterner, and the, the, you know, even the, before you get into Black ancestry or anything like that. Yes, exactly. And so and you
1: will, you, you still do see some subtle patterns, much more starkly, or much more obviously in the ancient population. So, the Egyptians tend to have less Zagros than the populations to the north and the east, which makes sense because they're further from the Zagros. If you look at modern Algerians, they have very little Zagros compared to the populations in the, in the Fertile Crescent, right? Um, so, you know, the different components are differentially represented in different populations. So, you know, the Natufians highly represented the Arabian populations, right? Because they spread out into Arabia. Um, with the Egyptians, they are a three-way mixed like this. And that's what we see in these early samples. I bet you the further back you go, the less Zagros ancestry they'll have. Um, but they probably had some Zag. It seems like the mixture was kind of ended by, by like, it was kind of almost complete by 4,000 BC or so, depending on how you estimate it. Because by the time you have written history and samples from that period, it's it's you know the west, eastern stuff is all through the west and the and so um by the way this is like unrelated to the Egyptian piece but this great admixture is one reason why people misunderstood the relation of European ancestry to Middle Eastern people because uh-huh. their Middle Eastern ancestors are Anatolian farmers that didn't have the other stuff, okay. And so modern Middle Easterners are very different than the ones that were at, there at the end of the Ice Age that were much more fractionated. Same thing is actually true in the Indian subcontinent where, um, the Eastern relatives of the Zagros farmers, uh, spread into all across North India and they're, you know, probably the dominant ancestral component. But, um, unlike everybody else, I mean, basically they, they, they have, there's a little bit of Anatolia, there's Anatolian ancestry even in the earliest Zagros samples um, that people have, but it's much lower, and that doesn't exist at all in eastern Iran, and or didn't. And so you had a situation where this Middle Eastern group that was dominant in eastern Iran got totally mixed away in Iran itself, but it contributed a lot of the ancestry yeah. in the Indian subcontinent. So that like tweaked the statistics. So the, and I'm only, uh, yeah.
0: Zagros seems like, uh, from looking at this, the, the most Zagros modern population is the Bedouins, is that right? The Bedouin B, whatever that is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So The Bedouin B are pulled out, and I don't know what they are, and or Tunisians? I don't know what the, I don't know what the difference between. Well, they're they're actually they're collected in Israel. Uh huh. These are Israeli it. samples, and there's like two Bedouin populations there, and and I've never heard anyone explain what they were collected decades ago by Kalvali Forza. Uh
0: huh.
1: So someone needs to like look into them. but they're very distinct. That's why they're just called A and B because people don't know what they are. But they're you know, there's structure in the Middle East. But anyway, going back to the Egyptians. So the standard Middle Eastern population, they got sub-Saharan African ancestry. Now, I did point out, um, you know, with the Muslims, you see some differences in the admixture analyses where they have more European-like ancestry maybe. It's not really European ancestry as such. I think what it really is is they just have more Eurasian ancestry in general from elsewhere. And this is because the Um So what you see in all Middle Eastern populations is Muslims are much more cosmopolitan than Christians. You know, or like religious minorities like Druze or Mandians, and that's because um, with slavery um, you could get manumission if you were a Muslim, and slavery was a, basically a pipeline into Islam. Now, for slaves from the Caucasus and the Pontic Step, um, Kipchak Turks mostly. Um, it was a pipeline to power, a pipeline to the Mamluk system, and the Mamluks were assimilated to the egyptian Arab population progressively over the generation because they were designed so as not to become a hereditary caste uh, officially, although they kind of already were by the early 19th century, and Muhammad Ali Pasha had to massacre a bunch of them. But in any case, um, so you have a situation where populations from the Caucasus and the Pontic Steppe are mixing into the Muslim Arab population, but not the Copts. And so you do see some differences. Um, I would say, um, so I estimated yesterday, at the clubhouse because people were asking, um, so obviously Sub-Saharan African ancestry is like, it's kind of like the ceiling would be 80% um, for ancient Egyptian continuity, just assuming there's nothing else. And with the Copts, that's kind of possible, although it looks like there's probably some subtle you know Greco-Roman influence too, but um, since the Greco-Romans, since the Greek speakers, since real like Greek, D- Greek descended Greek speakers, as opposed to Hellenized Egyptians, um, uh, probably never really farmed in Egypt. And we know now from the ancient DNA that cities are massive population sinks in the ancient world, just like in a way are in the modern world, but way worse in the ancient world because public health transformed things uh, 150 years ago. Well. 120 years ago, now the United States has started, and then it spread elsewhere, um, made cities much safer. But in the in the in the antiquity, cities were just very unhealthy, and so mortality rates were high, reproductive rates were low, so populations that are concentrating in the cities just invariably disappeared. So I suspect that that's one of the reasons why the greco roman like the the Jewish settler, the Jewish people that lived, Jewish and Greek people that lived in Alexandria, because Alexandria was a Jewish and a Greek city, right during the Roman Empire. I think they didn't leave very many descendants because they lived in the city. And uh, once that system collapsed, um, they were never replenished from elsewhere or from Hellenized Egyptians, which was probably what it was by the end. In any case, um, so the Egyptians, I think, are mostly descended from the Falilin, the, the peasants uh, of the Nile Valley. Um, another thing that I point out is, like, you can look at the Roman-era portraits, so these special portraits. I think they're, like, p- uh, panel paintings, right? And they're preserved in Egypt in the Fayyoun Depression because of climate. And you look at these people, and it's just like, you know, you've seen Coptic people in particular that look like this. So it's not like you have to do, like, fancy genetics. It's like they just they, – they exhibit the same type of variation. Now, some of these people might be Greek, but it's quite clear that most of them – I mean, a lot of them have brownish skin, so they're not Greek. I mean, they're not, like, pure Europeans, you know? So um, And some of them look quite like people, like, like I said, that you would see walking around. And so this is indicating continuity. Now the question here then goes to well why is Egyptians why are Egyptians speaking Arabic and all this stuff? And you know, I mean you, you brought up some issues, but basically like some linguists just claim it's like Afroasiatic languages can blend into each other more. I don't know. Um, but basically, you know, Coptic disappears by the twelve hundreds and Cairo after the fall of Baghdad to Helagu and the Mongols is basically the center of the Arab speaking world of Arabi, right? Um, for a long time until, you know, the Saudis and whatnot discovered oil, and then, okay, things changed a little bit there, right? Um, but, um, so you have a situation where they switch their identity uh, from, you know, this Egyptian, even the Copts eventually became Arabs, uh, but genetically, they're not that different, and this is the same thing that you see in the Maghreb. There's very little real Arab ancestry. There are some Arab tribes, like the Banu Halal, are found in Algeria, and they're also found in Egypt, but um, mostly... The ancestry looks like native Berbers or Amazigh, whatever you want to call them, as well as Latin speakers and Venetian speakers. Uh, that's just slowly Arabicized over time. And in Morocco and Algeria in particular, the process is still happening today as people from mountain villages uh, move to the cities and they start speaking Arabic and then their children can't speak any Berber dialect, right? So that's a pretty simple transition that you see in the Maghreb. Um, in Egypt, um, the estimate is that Muslim majority shows up around the eleven around after one thousand a d and then once that happens um probably you know that's one reason Coptic disappears in a couple of centuries because uh you know Coptic is associated with the christian uh indigenous majority or the you know erstwhile majority, and, and you know it's no longer no longer a thing, so um you know that that identity transition happened. But, um, you know, genetically, um, you know, Egyptians are still there, partly because, like, 5 to 10% of people 3,000 years ago were probably Egyptian. It was extremely densely populated, Mm -hmm. um, and there was just a lot of people there. So this idea that, oh, they could be, like, Arabians or even Mamelukes later, uh, it's just really hard to get the math work. And again, like I said, remember that cities are demographic shredders. Uh, Elites in the Muslim world tended to live in cities, And so um, it's kind of like a situation where, yeah, like you can imagine replacement could have happened, but they would all move to like Fustat or Cairo or Alexandria. And then before the modern era, that means it's a demographic sink. In contrast, like I have read stories about like, you know, and I don't know, I haven't followed up on this, but Bonaparte left a lot of soldiers, a lot of French soldiers Uh, In Egypt. And a lot of those soldiers ended up settling in villages in the Nile and stuff and becoming Muslim. And so people would note like decades later, there were villages where you would run into basically like a white looking Egyptian. Uh, And then they would be like, oh, well, my, you know, two of my grandfather's were French or something like that. You know what I'm saying, mm. and so, um, well, why is that persist? It's because like you know these French soldiers, like yeah, some of them, some of the elite ones were probably integrated into, into the Ottoman you know system or the whatever the early you know um, Muhammad Ali system. But a lot of them, like they were dispossessed, they didn't really have any resources, so they just kind of like, melted into the rural areas, and there they had you know offspring and, you know, they contributed genetically to the population. So um, it's basically like if you can get into a rural area then um, you will have an impact later. But if you're an elite that goes to an urban area, it's it's a, it's a much more minimal impact. The one area where I have seen, like, there's like, some pretty strong evidence is, like, um, some Muslims in in the Fertile Crescent, like, some of their Y-chromosomal lineages, they look pretty clearly Arabian. And so, um, high-status men from Arabian tribes clearly moved into the Levant and into Mesopotamia. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, most of the ancestry is not Arabian but the paternal lineages and so like that's that's what tended
0: to happen but yeah i think is- um yeah yeah, that is that is that is comprehensive, Steve. I think you went through the whole. I think you went through basically the whole article, and I, I don't know if I have any questions because that was everything. So I want to ask you, um, uh, what was the? Have you had any um, when you uh, write about uh, you've wrote about Jews before? When you've written about Indians, you usually get a lot of uh, people reaching out to you. Are Egyptians uh, reading this? Are they are they interested in, in uh, their history? Or are they finding your? Yeah, article?
1: yeah. Uh, several Egyptians have said that they appreciated it because it's pretty even handed, and obviously I don't really care. Um, you know, people have to be sensitive, especially in the United States, uh, because um you know, among like non upper middle class black Americans, it's I think kind of assumed that the Egyptians were black, and I don't know, really know what they think i, I there are theories of modern Egyptians, but really, like they're fucking Americans, so they don't give a shit and they don't know, you know yeah. I mean, they don't meet like Egyptians that are from Egypt, so they don't have to think about it. I think that's ultimately the issue. And so, um, you know, so, like, I have gotten some questions. Wait, are you saying that the ancient Egyptians weren't black? And I'm saying <laughs> say in a hostile way, they're just like, well, I mean, I thought I thought they were. I mean, that's what I was taught and that's yeah. what everyone says. And so I just said, yes, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's just we probably well, already knew. You
0: know, like, so people don't even know if the modern Egyptians are black, right? People aren't. Yeah, that's what I'm
1: saying. A lot of these people have never yeah. met modern. And some modern Egyptians are black. There yeah. are modern Egyptians who pass as African-American, partly because they have a lot of slips around African ancestry and they're officially labeled white on the census because they're Arab, yeah. Which like kind of pisses them off. So actually, like Anwar Sadat was a fourth Sudanese, right? So, um, and then I think um, I think Sayyid Qutub also had uh, um, some sort of like. I mean, when he was uh, so when Sayyid – I mean, and those of you who are younger and don't remember nine eleven in the two thousand, Sayyid Qutub was like some Islamic theorist that inspired Bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. He was Egyptian, and when he studied in the United States. Um, he was with some Egyptian students, I think, in Denver, and they, tried, they were going to like not let him into a movie theater because they thought he was black, and the, I remember the, it's notable that it was him that they pointed out because the other Egyptians must have looked not black enough that they were like okay like let them in you know and so they were like oh well he's egyptian too and they were like okay well you can go in but he was super offended he's like i'm not gonna go in if you didn't didn't want to let me go in anyway my point is egyptians today are you know there are some of them that in america they would quote pass as black right but there's also a lot of coptic egyptians that uh like what's her name like hoda she doesn't look black right i mean i know she's on the today show or something hoda kutub or something i don't remember her name but you know what i'm saying like, there's random Egyptian-Americans, and people don't know that they're Egyptian because they just – they look like generic Middle Eastern people, or sometimes they even look white, or, you know. Or, you know. I think – um, what's his name? Okay, this is super weird because <laughs> I have weird facts in my head. The guy, the, the lead singer from Creed, uh-huh. Scott Stapp, he married an Egyptian-American, a Coptic woman.
0: Uh-huh. So, but... it's not like I mean – <laughs> the cops have made it. Cops have made it. I guess.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, they do. They do pretty well in the United States, yeah. and they're also a market dominant minority in Egypt. Some economists have an argument that perhaps it's because um, the people who could afford the demi tax uh, yeah. were the more economically successful ones, whatever. But um, you know, they're one of those situations where they can't ever be head of state. I think it's actually not allowed, but. Nominally, I mean, they they're not. They can't be. You know, they can't be allowed to lead. It's the, they don't want a Bashar al-Assad like Alawite situation to ever happen in Egypt, right? Um, so, um, but like they're economically successful. They're quite prominent. I think some of you will remember Boutros Boutros-Ghali. Uh, he mm-hmm. was UN Secretary General in the 1990s, I think, and he was
0: copped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the so the Egyptians. So you, nobody's like. In, in, have people reached out from Egypt to, to uh, after this article? Or are they? Are, are just Americans? no? I think it's mostly
1: Egyptian Americans. Um, I think to, to hit Egypt, I, I'll have to ha- commission a translation, which I actually did for my piece on Russian genetics. So um, if you guys know someone who knows Egyptian Arabic, uh, I'm willing to pay. I mean, like sometimes, like I'm willing to just like get the word out. Well, it, it would yeah, be translated
0: just, into standard Arabic, so standard all that. Okay,
1: whatever. So, like, I, you know, you people like you no, know, you just, like, you figure are full out your of language. Trivia. You need, You should. Yeah, know I actually. Normal. Yeah, I know that. I know that different Arabic di- d- dialects are basically separate languages when they're spoken. Yeah,
0: yeah they are, but the written is standardized, so there wouldn't be an Egyptian Arabic. It would be written in Arabic, and you'd reach you'd reach the entire uh, Arab world with uh, with it. Um, so yeah, uh, the um, well, Egypt. Egypt is a country. What's your sense of Egypt as a country today? Because it seemed like it had a democracy um, for a minute and I had elected the yeah. wrong people, well, and, I then, mean, so, and then, I mean, like, it's gone to sleep ever since.
1: All right, so you're an Arab, so I feel like we're telling you this, but whatever. I, I think that they're, like, you know, they, they famously say in the Middle East that a lot of these countries aren't real countries, and but there are some real countries. I think yeah. Iran is a real country, obviously, and Egypt is kind of a real country. Like, it's geographically a real country, and it has a real history, and, you know, there are weird things related to Egyptian culture where – They probably do have some continuity with the ancient times. And, like, I mean, these are, like, you know, uh, look, they are peasant farmers, like, doing, like, you know, um, irrigated cultivation. I mean, this is, like, just a totally different way of life than in the semi-desert regions of the Fertile Crescent or something like that or in the Arabian Peninsula, right? So I just think they're very distinct uh, in that way. And um, so, you know, I, I think Egypt's a real nation, right? Now, you know, from what I know and what I've read, it's, like, you know, it's all, like, a state socialism-dominated economy. Yeah. And uh, obviously, um, in terms of a Ricardian system of land and labor, like, they can't be, like, so they, they need to shift away from agriculture because, like, the land – you're not going to get more land and you're not going to get that much more productivity out of it. They're kind of maxed out, right? So um, I think this is a situation where – um uh yeah i don't know egypt needs to make some sort of transition uh to some sort of labor
0: intensive like light manufacturing or something like that that's what i would say yeah yeah it's apparently i mean from what i hear the economy is just a complete basket case i mean it just has this sort of old kind of sort of uh mid 20th century sort of central planning mass subsidies yeah um and it's just it's never never really reformed and i you're always hearing about the uh like the these, bread uh, yeah, the, yeah the bread
1: i <laughs> mean it's like when people can't have bread i mean it's a serious problem if you listen to peter Zahan, like they're gonna starve and start eating each other
0: yeah yeah well i, I don't know if they're gonna starve <laughs> america will pay them america will pay them i guess indefinite. oh yeah, yeah because I mean, the, like the... to keep peace with israel and all that stuff yeah yeah egypt and jordan i mean it's a very unhealthy political economy because they're basically the u.s is just bribing them um to uh you know to to you know just come you know just to stay relaxed and and not do anything that's gonna destabilize things um the uh yeah what are the egyptian the u.s subsidies to egypt are are there a big let me see egyptian uh u.s subsidies Mm, let me see something here because i think it's i think it's like a pretty huge um uh so yeah price subsidies are nine percent you know price subsidies are a quarter of government spending in egypt right so they're nine percent of uh gdp i was trying to look up the u.s uh sort of what u.s aid what percentage of, you know, of the egyptian budget or gdp it is i i think it's i think it's high but i'm not i'm not actually sure on that uh if somebody knows you can jump in and yeah if anyone wants to comment or ask any other questions um at this point they can go ahead even you mr von Neumann, I'm sure. I'm sure you. I'm sure you have something today to say. Okay, we have our friend here, uh, Sherwin. Sherwin, hey Sherwin, I talked to you before.
1: Sherwin, yeah, on, yeah. you got to hey, unmute. Did, did you ever figure you out me? what your Y chromosome was? No, I've not tested. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is an issue where you're pleading the the genetic fifth. No, no, I, I don't think I'll ever. Yeah, no, you're never going to test it because you know what's going to happen.
2: What, a Sherman afraid no, of something?
1: No. Yeah, because I, no, I don't. I don't think... talk to brown. I don't talk to brown guys that aren't R one A. And so as long as he doesn't
2: know, uh, Rosi is just me a fooling question. me. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think like some things just like uh, it's not, no. There's no reason to know. All but, right. yeah, like the question. The question yeah. I had is like, uh, what do you think? It's tangentially related to Egypt. Like, what do you think? Like the Coptic Church survived while like the North African Church kind of disappeared.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a totally good point. Um, so, uh, this is like kind of like a BS answer, but, um, the, so there's, there's a couple of issues going on here. Um, so one, as you know, Coptic is Monophysite. Uh, are you, uh, are you of Kerala Christian background?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's where I'm kind of Are you interested. a Jacobite?
1: Yep. That's why I'm Alright, so, okay, this is like, I'm gonna do a quick tangential, um, for, for, for the nerds here. Um, so, uh, so the Jacobite church is like a Jacobus, like, is like a Syrian prelate or whatever. And so the Jacobite Church is one of the largest. It's I, I think it's about the same Eastern Orthodox might be a little larger. So in uh so like like Richard is from like a Melkite background and his mom is Roman Catholic. But uh Richard is a Melkite, so in Palestine, in modern what? day Palestine. Yeah. So in modern day Palestine, most of the Christians were Melkite, which meant that they were aligned with Byzantium and they were aligned the, with the uh Deophysite theological position that Christ has two natures. Whereas most of the Christians in Egypt um, in Syria, and actually lit Armenia, um, were monophysite, or miasphysite, as they would say, which means they emphasized the divine nature of Christ, even though he was incarnated in a man. And so this was like a big theological thing. Um, some people, as a site, like Hilary Bellick does this, they say, oh, this is like Greek versus non-Greek, Asiatic and Oriental versus... But this is actually false, because um, the primary theorists of the Meophysite theology were actually themselves Greek speakers, even if they were not ethnically Greek, so this is all Greek, comp- you know, theology in the Christian world is almost all Greek, like, if St. Augustine uh was a Greek, uh, we probably wouldn't know anything about him, because it just wouldn't be that, the Catholics get pissed off, but, like, the only reason St. Augustine's a big deal is because he's Latin speaker, okay? Mm-hmm. He's a rhetorician, like, you know, not a deep thinker. Anyway, um, so, this is all, like, Greek theology, and it worked out, um, I don't like you know like I don't think theology matters that much honestly, but I think it happened to be that the Miaphysite theology got associated um, with the Egyptian tradition, which you know goes back to Saint Anthony. It's a pretty deep tradition in the third century Christianity, and um, they aligned themselves against the Melkites, the imperial party, which is Byzantium, right? And there were in Byzantium themselves there were Monophysites, so the Emperor Anastasius was a Monophysite and uh, Theodora, and I'm, I'm using the the Byzantine word and Theodora herself, Theodora the Great, was a Monophysite. But after she died, um, the Monophysites didn't really have too many supporters in the imperial capital. And I mean, I'm not saying there were persecutions, but basically there were kind of there was some hostility there. There's a Melkite bishop in Alexandria, and uh, you know, obviously they were dominant in Palestine, but in Syria they weren't. And so you have a situation where when the Muslims came, um, they didn't necessarily look probably at the monophysites as enemies and vice versa because there had been so much controversy between these two Christian factions in um, in basically non European non-European Byzantium at that point, right? And in fact, like in Egypt and in Syria, the Monophysites were the majority. And so this results in um, Christianity having kind of a non-Byzantine, a non-Roman aspect to them. Now there was something like that also in Iraq um, and western Iran um, called the Church of the East, which is the Persian church. They had actually a totally different um, theology, which emphasized the, they're basically the opposite of the Monophysites. They emphasize the human nature of Christ. Um, basically, um, uh, the Church of the East, uh, they kind of, okay. this is complicated, but I'm just going to say it because like, there's no Church of the East people to get into arguments with me. They basically deny that Mary was the mother of God. Right, so they think Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ the human, but not Jesus Christ the God, and so like they emphasize the human nature, so there 's all these like different like factions in the Middle East. The upshot is the ones that are aligned uh, with um, with uh Byzantium have a somewhat different identity, and, um, you know, like the the Christian church declined in Palestine faster, probably because they were put under more pressure, because they're all Melkites, they're all aligned with Constantinople, just like the church in Antio- Antioch, the Antichene church, um, you know, they eventually became the Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox, uh, like Nassim Taleb's from an Orthodox background, quite distinct from the Maronites, who probably descend from the Monothelite heresy of the 6th century that was promoted by Justinian, but anyway, um, how is that different than North Africa? North Africa, you didn't have monophysitism. It was mostly dominated culturally by uh, a Latin Latin speaking elite. Uh, before the Vandal conquest, you had a situation where a lot of the land was actually ruled or owned by. Um, non, um, non resident landowners, Roman senators. When the Vandals conquered it, um, they took it all over. The Vandals are Aryan Christians, so they believe in a separate theology that goes back to the fourth century. And they persecuted, um, the Catholics, uh, we'll call them Catholics, like whatever, like the conventional Chalcedonian Christians of the Ro- Roman Christians. They persecuted them. Um, eventually, um, You know, they were conquered by the Byzantines through the Byzantine period, but there was also deeper factions within the uh, Roman North African Church that dates back to Saint Augustine's time, um, when there something called the Donatist churches, which never reconciled themselves to the imperial church. Because um, a lot of the bishops became apostates during the last persecutions, and so the Donatists were super butt about that. They never fucking forgot, and so they never accepted the legitimacy of the imperial church in parts of North Africa. And Saint Augustine, the you know of, of Hippo, was arguing against a lot of this. So I think the issue in North Africa is it's more fragmented fragmented situation where um, the church is not a cohesive whole with a particular identity. There was never a Berber church. Um, Some Berbers were clearly Christian, and um, St. Augustine's mother was probably from an Amazigh background herself, um, in terms of just her name, Monica, tends to be associated with Berber-type people. Um, His dad was probably a Latin colonial, you know? But, um, so when the Muslims came, um, it took about 300 years, the church disappears. I think the last bishops were like 1000 AD, um, and it's just because they never uh, developed deep roots outside of these Latin cities, whereas the church in... In Egypt um, is a rural church. I mean, to this day, there's a higher percentage of Christians in parts of Upper Egypt, like the hinterland, than in the urban metropole, right? Um, So it's not a situation where you can just knock out and take out the cities and boom, it's done, right? So one of the arguments for Zoroastrianism was weaker than Christianity, uh, where it didn't last as long as like Christianity in the Levant and in Egypt – um, is because Zoroastrians were associated with the Persian nobility and, um, the Zoroastrian priesthood, priests were. And once the Persian nobility switched, um, they had no patrons and so they kind of withered. Whereas, um, obviously, uh, the Monophysite Christians in, um, you know, these, these sectarian Christians, let's just call them or, the proto-Oriental Orthodox. Um, they had developed a, a local constituency, even though they came, come out of the same, you know, Greek, Deal um, they're to one particular faction, and um, they developed a local constituency in the rural areas. Um, like so, for example, the Maronites—they come out of the mountain, they come out of the hinterlands. You know, like they're deep up there; they're not like city people. So I think that is a big difference um, in terms of India. It actually was probably original. I mean, we know for a fact it was—it was actually aligned with the Church of the East, um, and then the Portuguese came. The Church of the East based in Tashkent and later in Baghdad. Um, and when the Portuguese came, they cut that connection off, and a lot of them switched to the Jacobites. To, um, to, I think it was in Damascus, and now some of them actually have gone back to the Church of the East, and others are now Protestant, and others are now Catholic, right? So it's whatever. They can't make up their mind. Um, but that's that's that. Does that answer your question?
2: Oh yeah, that was really detailed. Thank you, thank you,
0: <laughs> Razib. You have you are so brimming with knowledge that I think that I think people can't. Can't even keep up with all your all your.
1: Well, I just I don't forget I don't forget things. Okay, like let's be honest about it. I just don't forget things.
2: Yeah. Oh, hey, Riziv. Yeah. Riz, Riz, also, if you ever have time, can you do a like a clubhouse or something on like the Saint Thomas Christians the Nasrani's? Yeah,
1: remember? I actually have like genetic work that I'm doing on that, and um, I'm probably going to publish it uh, within the next like six months. But um, the, kana, the kana, are you Kana? No, I'm um, no. Okay, because the Canaan are, are somewhat different. I mean, like Upshot, I think that they're not actually um, – Jew- they're definitely not Jewish. They're probably not Arab. They're probably actually descended from Persian Christians.
0: So. Right, okay. Anyway. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sherwin. Um, what are you working on next? You know – Hans. Hans. Oh, that's right. You talked about Hans.
1: Yeah, that'll you, be out. So the Hans will be out within the next like couple of
0: days, probably, maybe tonight, tomorrow. Uh Uh-huh. Uh the uh okay, cool. And then the um you know, you should do other big countries that nobody like thinks about. You ever did you ever do anything for Indonesia? I haven't.
1: Um I don't have too many samples from Indonesia. So I actually, as you as you you probably have noticed, I like to do my original data analysis in each post, uh to get my hands dirty uh with the Mm. variation. There's not that many Indonesian samples. I mean I can double check, but yeah, like I could do Indonesia. People have asked about Austronesians, so I'll do Austronesians. Um, I have like a spreadsheet with topics and you know it's just like do I have time to get to it like I haven't touched China yet but hey beyond the great 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 firewall they maybe they're never gonna like read it anyways right they can't like speak English I don't know but mm-hmm. uh, I think it's an important country to write about so I'll probably yeah. write about China um, I in the survey I actually asked for things to write about and a lot of people gave suggestions so I'll probably um, update my database and figure that out but like so far, um, you know, I do have to say, uh, it's a lot of work, but I enjoy it. And um, I think, like you know, to make money on Substack, which I am, as you know, making money, mm-hmm. um, provide a uh, provide a non-substitutable good or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, like try go try and find uh, the content that I'm producing on Substack somewhere else. Good luck to you, <laughs> you
0: know, uh, Mister. So. V- yeah, Mr. von Neumann, who's who's uh, who's uh, too uh, shy to talk today, wants to know when Jap- when Japanese and Korean.
1: Yeah, so that's actually been on deck for a while. Um, I think the Japanese one in particular, Korean is interesting. I have data for both, um, so that would be great. Um, when I I don't know, probably I I would bet before Thanksgiving. That's like so Korean. So like I mean, like, if you guys want to know like Korean. Uh, Japanese, Korean, Chinese. Um, I want to write something about uh, wolf and dog domestication after Anders Bergstrom's latest paper. People have been asking me about that. That's a super popular topic. Um, and then I'm also reading a lot about Vikings right now. I want to write something about Scandinavia. So I wrote a five-parter on Finland last year. Yeah, that was great. So, I mean, it's going to be like – I can't write less than a five-parter on the Vikings Scandinavia. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I they, for- they get like super pissed.
0: So. Uh, the um, what about um, Central Asia is interesting because they look like a mongloid uh, European mix, but I, I have no idea about their genetics. You ever thought yeah, about yeah, no, one? no, that's what,
1: it's not European necessarily. It depends on what you're talking about. So the it's basically like um, it's got Eastern European in there, uh, partly from the earlier Indo-Aryan Indo-Iranian substrate. Also, like there's Persian backflow, so there's some West Asian in there, and then yes, mm-hmm. like Siberian, a little bit of like Northern Han ancestry. So um, here's like an obscure fact. I'm reading like a history of Iran, but I already knew this. Um, You know, Dari is the language that they speak in Central Asia and Afghanistan. That's called, you know, like, you know, Central Asian Persian, but Mm -hmm. Central Asians didn't speak Persian. Right. That was that was that only became really common after the Mongol conquests and the native Iranian languages of Central Asia were finally pretty much obliterated and replaced by Tajik, which is Dari. You know, so Persian is actually an Iranian dialect that spread from the southwest of Iran in the Fars, um, which, you know, obviously the Achaemenids and the Sasanians were both from the Fars, you know. But another locus of Iranian power has traditionally been Khorasan in that area uh, by Turkmenistan, that's where the Parthians are from. Um, and that region did not speak Persian, even though Persian was the elite language among the Iranian peoples for a while. My only point is Persian's dominance in the northeast of the Iranian world is is an artifact of the last thousand years. And its so, what, what, were, what
0: were Tajiks? What were Tajiks speaking? They are speaking a close to they speak Dari now, right? They speak Dari, but um, you probably know about the
1: Sogdians. You know, there's still a few Sogdian speakers left. They're called Yagnabi um, in the Ferghana Valley. Uh, to the north in the, in the, 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 lower region of the street in Armudaria, you had like Khwarezmian. Um, so they were like, you know, like, you know, and then Bukharan, I think was a separate language.
0: So they were always speaking Indo-European
1: languages. They yes. were never
0: anything close to East Asia.
1: Okay. No, no, no. That's, 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 that's due to the Turkish
0: migrations after 600 AD.
1: What's up? What's up?
0: What, what is Turk- due like to Tur- oh, the Turkish migrations is, is the, um, is responsible for the, uh, uh, with so originally but the like people in Tajikistan we go back as far as we go because they're genetically what they they are not they're not overwhelmingly Persian or uh well they're mostly
1: right? Central Asian indo-european and so they have a higher step fraction than yeah. Persians of Persia the further west and south you go in Persia the lower the step fraction is in the populations uh, the more they're like I see so they have yeah. they
0: have they have a they have an influx of step and they are uh, yeah they speak the, yeah and so the', uh, the, the, the
1: it, yeah. In Iran, the client is northeast to southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's highest in Khorasan, which is on the other side. I actually – so uh, I, I'll tell you guys something um, because like, I, I think this is like – I don't think I'm divulging privacy. Uh, so I was working on a forensic case. woman was killed in a state park. I'm not going to say where, but let's say huh. very northern part of the United States. She's a ginger um she had like died recently enough to, they could tell the hair was a ginger and so you know they do genetic analysis to try to match her into the database and they can't find a match anywhere in, in the united states which is really weird for a white american uh-huh. well i got the dna and i looked at it and i'm like i think she's from mashad mm. so she's probably eastern iranian um no uh no uzbek ancestry but way less like Arab like ancestry than someone from Esfahan or Tehran or the West, right? Ugh. And so that's why they wouldn't find any match. She's probably from Tarangelis or something. Yeah. And she probably has no relatives in the United States because, like, on the map, she looks like she's from Mashhad, you know? Um, and hey. there are some people who are Iranian who are very fair, so she was yeah. one of them. Interesting. Okay,
0: well, Mr. von Neumann, sorry, we're
2: sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are are uh, the Kurds genetically very similar to, to Iranians? Like, are they very much related to the ancient Zagros people?
1: Yeah, I mean so um they are related to the ancient Zagros people like Iranians themselves that's a different term right then that's there's a lot more steppe ancestry there but they are related to the ancient Zagros people they're not that different um they're not that different than other people in western Iran last I checked uh they're not that different than Arabs in Iraq but the thing is Arabs in Iraq Arabs in um so the difference between Turks, Arabs and uh, Kurds in that region is Kurds tend not to have too much African ancestry and Turks don't either, but Arabs do for some reason. Uh, probably, you know, whatever. We could like talk about why the local history is. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Arabs do. Yeah.
2: Also, is the only like distinction between cops and say Levantines is that cops have a little bit of like Nubian ancestry? Is that the main difference? Um, it's a little older than that because
1: um, cops from I mean, like the largest proportion of ancient Egyptian ancestry is Natufian, so it's obviously the same original root. root, root but um, okay. if mm-hmm. you're talking about modern Levantines, there's more steppe ancestry in the Levant. Um, yeah, I'm when, talking about
2: like Richard. <laughs> yeah, like Richard is much lighter skinned than a typical cop. And I was asking, like, what's the main cause of that? Well, go to Razib's substack, and you can see he's got all these populations. Yeah, no,
0: yeah I know. <laughs>
1: I mean, I would say, um, yeah, I would say it's, it's mostly probably like the, yeah, I mean, it's Nubia, it's probably the Nubian ancestry. I mean, I've seen cops, like Ramez Nam is 100% coped, like, you guys know Ramez Nam, he's a friend of mine, and he's a brown skinned dude, and he's coped. Okay. Um, yeah. so, you know. Um, but, but for the cop, um,
2: all African ancestry all shifted for Nubian, whereas for the Muslim... It's yes, yes, place. at least
1: on my admixture plot. At least on my admixture plot. And it's really evenly and old, so that means it's not like... Well, because like, they can't have slaves. They're Christians. And so they haven't had nude blood, literally, into their system for a thousand years. Um, more than a thousand years. But in the in the ancient days, obviously, they did. And so, you know, Nubians intermarried... Uh, with the Coptic peoples, and, you know, Nubia is right to the south. Uh, I do want to say, like, I think, like, um, there's not that much more Nubian ancestry in Muslims than Copts and, like, what's going on with that, and I think, uh, so Nubia was Christian, it was it was Christian until about, like, 1300, 1350, and so what Ethiopia is now, what we think of Ethiopia as, like, kind of a boulevard against, against the spread of Islam, that was Nubia uh, for, like, I mean, how many, like, it's, like, 350 plus yeah 750 years that was nubia right or 650 years that's nubia and so i think like because of that uh, because it was like a military power and they were culturally distinct they protected themselves i think that cut off the slave trade from nubia because uh, muslims in particular uh they like to target um you know like less organized peoples obviously non-muslims by definition and so they would go slave trading into like the sudanic zone and, you know they were doing this like i mean if you read um about um if you read about like you know the free the congo free state or whatever under the belgian guy it's like there's like, you know, Tanzanian Muslim slave traders that are operating deep in the Congo in the 19th in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So, um, you know, they're very even though they didn't convert the local people, they're very entrepreneurial about the trade in humans.
0: The uh, you know what I have to cor- make a correction about earlier. I said the Bedouin B was the most I got my colors mixed up. Was the most Zagros modern population. No, it looks like it was actually the from what I eyeballing it, the Druze and then the Iraqi, the Iraqi Jew um, that you have in the sample, so it's not. It's
1: yeah, not... And so the Iraqi Jews would be isolated from the more Jews. recent gene flows, and the Druze, the Druze, like I've noticed that they're relatively northern shifted for an Arab population. I don't know why. It could be that there was more over time there was Arab gene Arab gene flow from Arabia that kept moving northward, and that's made the Druze. So the Druze are like closer to say Armenians than most other Arab populations. For example, like when I look at the data, Do, like a, you have the
2: Samaritans. Yeah. Well, are they also right there, the Samaritans with the Druze?
1: Uh, Samaritans are so fucking inbred. I I don't want to, like, correct for that. Like, it's like they mess up the statistics. No offense. So. <laughs> so I mean,
2: those okay. are, like, the most
1: pure... I mean, it's like when you have, like, a really inbred population, you try to, like, put it into a model. It's like the models, like, what the hell are you... Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, most Jewish air populations
2: gonna... are mixed, and then, like, the, the closest to pure, like... The pure well, I mean, is, there like, are well, populations
1: yeah. that are quite inbred, too. It's just the Samaritans are just like, oh, my God. It's just, like, the model is, like gonna crash well, the, yeah there's like, like FIS you can,
2: right you can, like, yeah there's like I mean that's why they're marrying Russian Jews they're they're, they're,
1: they're marrying Russian Jews to diversify because they know that they have a problem anyway yeah, all right yeah, guys yeah. uh I should probably probably end this unless there's any other question Tony what are you doing here bro you should be in clubhouse
0: whoa oh come on man Colin is a very Colin is a fine app okay this, about, wait wait uh,
1: do you do they pay you for this show uh, no no comment wait Dick doesn't
2: use Clubhouse, remember? <laughs> he
1: use- I know, but Clubhouse don't pay, bro. Yeah, I want to get a call-in I'll- show. You're like, call-in, call-in actually, the- like, um, it pays pretty well
0: for some people.
2: Oh, they pay oh, wow. okay. I didn't. Oh, the, I see. Uh, dick is, is,
0: the- it. is the um uh, does Clubhouse even let you release as a podcast? Because this will be released as a podcast for everybody.
1: Yeah, it does. I don't like to do that. It's I just like the spontaneity of Clubhouse, but. I should probably, like, if I'm going to do it, I should just. I mean, I'm allowing recording now, but I don't do it, like. Because, like, you know, I, I this is like a spontaneous conversation, and,
0: and who knows what I'm going to say, what I said. Gotcha. Yeah, I think what Colin so is doing, coming. I think they're trying to. I think they have a different business model. I think they want everyone to sort of. They want to be like the podcast thing. So they want people to actually record and then release on podcasts, and it's like a call in slash my Well, Clubhouse started out as just a place to sort of, you know, just uh, shoot the breeze. Uh, and maybe they added, maybe they added uh, the the um, podcast thing, but I don't think that was that wasn't built into the model. But yeah, I mean, clever. I'm, I'm gonna my I'm, I'm, I'm one question.
2: One question you. Christians, you see a genetic difference between the Catholic and the Orthodox was, I, and like, I don't think there. I mean, like,
1: there's nothing like Dick doesn't seem heterozygous in any way. Like all the Catholics must have been Orthodox. Like it's not there wasn't a native Catholic. Popular. I mean Catholic Christian Roman Catholic Christianity is Western Christianity. Like, why the hell would it be in the Eastern Mediterranean? Oh
0: by the way, I just looked at my twenty three and me, um so I'm like uh I'm like thirteen percent European but it's a hundred percent on my dad's side um and my mom Ooh. is complete Middle Eastern now this is interesting because you talked about cities and rural areas. Now my dad yeah. is from Jerusalem. Well, there is my, some yeah. And I mean, my the, mom is rural
1: rural from Yeah yeah maybe uh, your dad is so, like
2: there's or some shit.
1: Or he could be, like, he could be Crusader. Crusader, bro. Yeah, crusader, Ferengi. Yeah. Ferengi blood. <laughs> That's what I'm... Well, so they actually did, um, they actually have done, Mark Haber has done work on Crusader towns and stuff and all this, and you can see, like, basically French people in these, um, Crusader states in the Middle Ages, and then you lose track of it, and they're almost, they're basically gone, and it, it does seem correct that, you know, these people just got on ships and went back Yeah, to I the think my dad. I think my dad's left. side.
0: I think they had. They actually had like an, uh, a British relative, like not that long ago. Like actually, four you know, four to six gener like four, you know, f- not four to six generations ago, like two to three generations ago. Um, so it's uh, so it's even more recent uh than that. But my mom has green eye- my mom has green eyes, but she's a pure um, she's a pure Middle Easterner. Um, and uh, my parents will not do twenty three and me uh because they're immigrants and they're paranoid about uh. People having your data, uh, so you know it's just. Well, but aren't not,
1: they it. retired? Uh, yeah. So, well, what are people going to do with the data? What how are they use them? I don't, I don't them? know. They watch. They
0: watch. They're, they're not they going to hire watch.
1: them for jobs when they're eighty-two.
0: They watch a lot of Fox News at their age, and
1: they are they are very scared of. <laughs> well, maybe I need to go on Tucker and like promote genetic I need science. To go on
0: Tucker and explain to them the. Uh, <laughs>
1: some, yeah, actually, Tucker, Tucker, you have a uh, you know, yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to say anything. Okay, um, I should probably All go. Right. Let's let's cut this uh, cut this short now.
2: Okay. All right, everyone.